Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to John 16. John 16 in your Bibles. We won't be there for a little bit. And in fact, um, we're going to be jumping around to several places this evening. Uh, a bit more of a topical message based upon what we learned this morning about the Holy Spirit. This morning, in the context of the Holy Spirit of God coming upon the man Saul and filling him for ministry, we spent some time learning about the ministries of the Holy Spirit. And the two specific ministries we spent time on this morning were the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we were very careful to contrast the two, recognizing that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that which is exclusive to this age, as best we know from Scripture, the church age. Uh, but the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that transcended ages. And we understood from that that um, Saul and many Old Testament uh, figures did not go through what we would typically call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that they could not be saved, for we spoke of the reality that salvation is by faith. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a result of our salvation, not the cause of our salvation, and that as Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, so too we believe God, the revealed word of God, and it is counted unto us for righteousness. But let's begin this evening by quickly reviewing what we learned this morning. In the context of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we learned that the Bible is not speaking of physical water baptism, but rather an initiation into Christ. And we gave the definition of spirit baptism this morning this way. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a divine, one-time transaction which takes place at the moment of salvation, whereby you are spiritually removed from your position in Adam and spiritually placed into Christ, thus judicially qualifying you to receive pardon for sin and eternity in heaven. So because you are no longer in Adam if you have accepted Christ as your Savior and thus been baptized by the Holy Spirit of God, you are no longer spiritually associated with Adam's rebellion, but rather you are spiritually associated with submission to, with the, the submission of Christ. And in doing so, you have, uh, your, your sin in Adam uh, has been removed. You die with Christ and judicially have the sinless obedience of Jesus Christ imputed unto you so that you can then receive redemption and God's wrath upon sin for your sin and your sin nature can be satisfied. We then spent a few moments on the filling of the Holy Spirit and we described it in two distinct but interrelated ways. So we defined spirit filling as this. Spirit filling in scripture describes a spiritual state whereby a person is under the control of the Holy Spirit and thus enabled by the Holy Spirit to perform either a specific spiritual task or simply operate under the general influence of the Word of God in daily endeavors. Spirit filling is often how we describe God's divine enablement for a specific spiritual task, whether Old Testament or even in the New. But we also broaden this idea, remarking that more generally speaking, the filling of the Holy Spirit speaks of a believer uh, who is regularly and consistently operating under the influence of the Word of God, so that according to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, to be filled with the Spirit is to exhibit a heart of praise, thanksgiving, and humility before God and man. And as we find ourselves in this state of submission, we are living generally filled with the Spirit of God. 
And the end of this filling is that we will bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And we mentioned that this general filling of the Holy Spirit is essential for us to be in a place of readiness for the Holy Spirit of God to then be able to divinely and temporarily fill us with His enablement through His Spirit unto a specific spiritual task. So when God enables you to share the gospel in a way that you've never done before or uh, give you recall of verses that you, you had not thought of for years, you see the Spirit filling you and using you for that particular task. When God enables you to uh, comfort a grieving brother or sister in Christ in a way beyond what you would consider your own capacity as you're willing to be used, you are filled with the Spirit of God unto that task. When God gives you tremendous clarity of thought or uh, physical capacities beyond your scope of training in order to minister in a unique way, you are being temporarily filled with the Spirit of God unto a specific spiritual task. But the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit are just two of a number of ministries which the Holy Spirit performs in this world and in our lives, particularly as believers. The first one we're going to look at this evening is a ministry to unbeliever and believer alike in different ways, of course. But the second, uh, the, the rest of them, the, the other six, seven, the other seven are um, specifically for those who have put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. So let's begin this evening with, you're there in John 16, verse 8, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, verses 7 through 11, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin, because they believe not on me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. So Jesus says that the Holy Spirit's reproving or convicting power in this world will work in three directions. And notice it's toward the world, which Jesus Christ um, quite consistently contrasted with his disciples being those who are not of this world. And the first way that Jesus Christ says there would be conviction by the Holy Spirit is of sin because they do not believe on me. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will impress upon the hearts of men the deep reality of their unbelief, that the spirit of every man is weighed down with the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Isn't that a freeing thought? That when you engage someone about the truth of Jesus Christ, about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is actively engaging the hearts of men with you about this truth, about their identity of, as being a sinner and their sin of unbelief. Aren't you glad that you don't have to guilt people into accepting Christ, that you don't have to manipulate people into accepting Christ, for you know that there is one that is the Holy Spirit of God that is doing a work in the hearts of men that we could never possibly do? And so that it is our opportunity, our responsibility simply to share the gospel with those with whom we come in contact with and then allow the Holy Spirit of God to do the rest. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3.19 that the sin of unbelief is the sin that keeps men under condemnation. He specifically said in John 3.19 and this is the condemnation that Light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
He would say just one verse prior, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. The sin that condemns men to hell is the sin of unbelief. And when a person refuses your appeals, you can yet know that the appeals of the Holy Spirit have been and are actively working in their hearts. So the first reproof of the Holy Spirit against the world is for the sin of unbelief. The second reproof against the world is, he says in John 16, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. The Holy Spirit is also convicting the heart of the unbeliever that Jesus is righteous, not just that they are sinners and that they have not believed and that they are in unbelief, but that Jesus Christ is righteous, that God has accepted Christ's payment for sin and that has been proven by the resurrection and ascension because Jesus has gone to the Father, the Holy Spirit appeals to the reality that Jesus is indeed the one and only Savior that has been approved by God, that God has placed a stamp of approval that yes, indeed, this is the way to me. And as we live lives of obedience and share the gospel that we know with friends and strangers alike, the Holy Spirit is busy convincing men that God made Jesus to be sin for us, that we, First Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians five twenty one, might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The third and final element of conviction that Jesus Christ taught in regard to the Holy Spirit's convicting power in the world. He says, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. So they will first be convinced by the Spirit of God that they are in unbelief, then convinced that Jesus Christ is indeed the one who, through His resurrection, has, has the, the ability um, given by God to redeem them from their sin. And then finally, of judgment, of the consequence should they refuse, that the prince of this world is judged, that Satan is judged, that all who that are of this world will be judged, and that if they want to avoid judgment, that they must flee to Christ. Now, once a man believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit begins a work of sanctification within our hearts, showing us that things in our lives which are not pleasing to God uh, must be taken out and applying the teachings of the Word of God to us specifically. And so the convicting power of uh, the Holy Spirit in our lives is to reveal to us more about the Word of God and allow our fear of God and our love for God than to compel us to remove those things that are wrong from our lives. We'll focus more on this, a little bit more on this, when we get to the teaching role of the Holy Spirit, which will be a little while still. The second broad ministry of the Holy Spirit, we spoke of conviction. The second, and remember, the rest of these will only pertain to believers, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says, There is one God and Father of us all who is above all and through all and in you all. Literally, that God is above all things and that He is working through all things. But notice as well, He, the Bible says, is in us. Not everyone in the world is being spoken of here, but rather those who are believers. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He is writing in the context of believers, and he says that God is above all and through all and in us all. 
Who is this God that is in us? Say, well, Pastor, you've said that the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. How, how do you get that from this verse? It says that the Father, the God and Father of us all, is the one that is in us all. Well, take a look at John 7, verses 37 to 39 on the screen. Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he, here it is, of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So when we accept by faith the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit regarding our unbelief, the Bible says that we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, we are placed into Christ, and at that same moment the Holy Spirit is placed into us. That's what Jesus was speaking of here, a belly of a uh, belly that flows with living waters, similar to the statement he made to the woman at the well that she would never thirst again if she were to receive the water that he was to give her, for it would be within her a spring of water bubbling up unto eternal life. The Spirit can live inside of us because we have been given a new nature. This nature is apart from Adam's sin. And the function of the Spirit within us is to produce in us the likeness of Christ unto good works. He gifts us for the good of the church. He teaches us right and wrong. He produces within us the fruit of the Spirit as a testimony of redemption. And we'll speak of each of these in turn. So, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Paul tells us here that the Holy Ghost is in us, that indeed we are His dwelling place, we are His temple, given to us by God. Therefore, we do not exist to serve ourselves, but rather we exist to be a vessel through which the Holy Spirit may work. The unbelieving in this world, their body is their own. They use it for their own purposes. They push it to its limits. They abuse it. They are under the erroneous assumption that their body has been given to them for their own pleasure. But in fact, the Bible says that is not the case. And we who are believers are those who have recognized that our bodies are intended to be the temple of the Holy Ghost. Now, only believers have the Holy Ghost indwelling. And so only we can realize that purpose of being a vessel through whom the Holy Spirit may work. Broad ministries of the Holy Spirit, convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. The third one we'll talk about this evening is the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption, unto the day of redemption, excuse me. Also in 2 Corinthians one twenty-two, the Bible says that God hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the spirits in our hearts. We'll talk a little bit more about that earnest when we get to um, the assuring ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the biblical idea of a seal carries with it um, two concepts. First and foremost, a seal was a sign of protection, showing that the contents of whatever was sealed are secured. In uh, former days, not too long ago, and for a large portion of history, there would be wax that would be put over an envelope, and then the seal of the person who wrote that letter would be put on that wax. And when a person received the letter, they would know who it was from, and we'll talk about that in a moment, by the seal, uh, by the signet, but they would also recognize that the letter had not been opened because the wax had not been tampered with. 
And I mentioned already that second purpose, not just to protect, but also to identify, revealing who it is that has done the sealing. Now, the Holy Spirit of God, as our seal, not only protects us until the day of redemption, permanently seals us into Christ that guarantees our standing before God on that day. First and foremost, revealing the protection that we have through the Spirit in Christ. The sealing of the Holy Spirit, however, also is a sign of identity and authority that the one who has sealed us is God, for God has given us of his Holy Spirit. And as we see the fruit of God's Holy Spirit born out in us, we have the confidence that indeed it is God who has sealed us until the day of redemption and that we can trust that sealing. Now, I mentioned already 2 Corinthians one twenty-two. This is one of three New Testament verses that call the Holy Spirit our earnest, literally our down payment of that which is to come, that the Holy Spirit inside us, working himself out through us, is the promise that there is a more and greater that is to come and is the assurance that we will be a part of those greater things through Christ. The next broad ministry of the Holy Spirit, conviction and dwelling, sealing forth, bearing fruit, bearing fruit. This is one of the most obvious elements of the Holy Spirit, for it is the one that works itself out regularly in our lives. We see this taught in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, just following teaching about what the works of the flesh are, those things that are manifest when we are living selfishly and for ourselves. Galatians 5, 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Paul says, Against such there is no law. Most of us are quite familiar with this passage. Paul lists the lust of the flesh, then contrasts those with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let's be clear here. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of walking in the Spirit. Earlier, we described what it means to generally be filled with the Spirit of God, that we would be uh, filled with praise and thanksgiving and humility toward God and man. And that is the aim, the focus of our Christian life. It is to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It should never be our focus to produce the fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is not something we produce. It is something that the Spirit of God produces in us. And as we are walking moment by moment in the light of God's Word, as we are filled with the Spirit of God through praise, thanksgiving, and humility, we will see the the fruit of the Spirit born out in our lives as God has designed it to be. Now, as you think about this list of virtues, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, really that comprises almost everything that it means to be a Christian in this life, does it not? As such, the only conclusion that we can arrive at is that the Holy Spirit is not just helpful to us as a Christian, but it is absolutely necessary on a daily, moment-by-moment basis to be walking with the Spirit and to be bearing the fruit of the Spirit if we are to be what God wants us to be. The Holy Spirit is not here to help you. The Holy Spirit is here to be everything that you need to be in Christ. Literally, to be a properly functioning Christian, a God-honoring Christian, is to be so filled with the Spirit through submission to God's Word that the Holy Spirit is bearing fruit in you that you are fully under the control of the Spirit of God. So we've seen the conviction 
of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, bearing fruit through the Holy Spirit. The next ministry, as we continue this broad overview, is the gifting of the Holy Spirit. We find the most clear passage of the gifting of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4-7. through The Bible says this, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administration, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh in us all. Excuse me, worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. The gifts of the Spirit are distributed to every believer for the purpose of benefiting the church as a whole. These are not natural talents directed towards spiritual ends, but rather divinely given capabilities uh, given only to believers to benefit the church specifically. Some spiritual gifts are given to all believers. Some are only to certain believers. All believers have them. And while some are more public than others, the Bible clearly states that no gift is more important or less important than any other in the overall operation of the body of Christ. We spoke of these, de- these gifts in depth about a year and a half ago, I suppose now, in 1 Corinthians when, when I taught through that. And you can get that online if you are uh, interested in a refresher. We reiterate that God's design in giving you these gifts, however, is that you can become an active, functioning contributor to a church. Right there at the end in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all, to profit everyone. These gifts are not for you. These gifts are given to you for function in the body of believers. Follow me here. God gives you His Spirit to bear fruit in your lives as a means of sanctifying you and making you what you need to be as an individual. Then God gives you His Spirit and through His Spirit grants you a divine gift or some divine gifts intended to function as a small piece, a member as the Bible calls it, of the body of believers for the purpose of mutual edification and outreach to the lost. Now, the implication of this for your life is that as a Christian, your life is not just about you and God. How many times have I heard that today? Well, my my Christian walk is a personal thing. My faith is a personal thing. I don't need a church. I don't need to be a, a part of a fellowship. It's about me and God. I can have a relationship with God just fine without a church. No, you can't. If your Christian life was just about you and God then why did God gift you for the good of the body of Christ? It's not just about you. God has designed each of us to be in a local church, busy about the work of Jesus Christ in our communities, using the divinely given gift as a a small part of a greater whole for the glory of Christ in our communities as a part of a local assembly. And if we aren't serving in a local assembly, then on the authority of God's Word, you are missing a vital aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit within you, a vital aspect of God's design for you. Well, pastor, you might say, I don't believe that. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit have been given for me to to function in the greater body of Christ. That mystical body union of believers all around the world so that I can be a part of of the body of Christ as a whole gifted for that very purpose. But think about that with me for a minute. To serve the church, if it doesn't mean the local church, then what good is the gift? How many people out there are using the gift that God has given to them to serve the greater body of Christ? 
If you've been given the gift of administration, how are you going to serve the, the greater body of Christ with that? I challenge this thought and I do so on these grounds. God has ordained the church. We know that. And as we see the church described in the New Testament, we see it as a body led by elders, supported by deacons, perfecting believers to do the work of the ministry and to the edifying of itself in love. We find that in Ephesians. What is a church without elders? What is a church without accountability and discipline? What is the church without stability and mutual edification to build you up for the work of the ministry? What is a church without the work of the ministry? To say that the primary meaning of the church in the New Testament is to describe a mystical body of Holy Spirit and dwelled saints is to throw out vast amounts of teaching on the very character and identity of the church and how it's intended to operate. I guarantee you if you're listening online today and you're not a part of a church and you're using this message as a supplement because you don't want to become a part of a church, that whatever gift the Holy Spirit has gifted you with, that you are not using it to its fullest capacity. That however it is you feel you are being built up unto Christ, that you are still not being built up through the mutual edification of believers. You're being built up through the teaching of one man over the internet. You don't need the teaching of one man over the internet exclusively. You need the mutual edification of believers. Do you know what you need? You need elders who know you and who are holding you accountable to what is being taught, who are holding you accountable to what the Bible says, who are keeping you on track because they know you, because they love you, because they pray for you, because they're watching over you. You need a shepherd. You don't just need a man on the television, a man on the internet. You don't just need the the men behind the books. You need a body of believers. You need iron sharpening iron. You need the mutual fellowship and edification of the body of Christ. And that is found, ladies and gentlemen, through the local church. Now, we are in a globalized society. We have internet. We have television. We have radio. Things have broadened. Praise the Lord. You can turn your radio on every day and get Bible teaching. You don't have to wait for this one man who gets tired to, to meet with you and, and this one man who only has so much time in the day to meet with you because you can just turn on Bible teaching anytime you want. But you know, it wasn't like that in 1 Corinthians 12. It wasn't like that in the New Testament and that's not how God designed His church. God designed the church to be a local body of believers. Just as He designed the family to be an immediate group of people. When we can say that, that the church is a family, we can say that, that our community might feel like family, our school might feel like family, whatever it is, our friends might feel like family, but you know, there's still a difference when it comes to those who live with you, who know you, who, who are blood related to you. With that being said, I say again, the inherent, that, that inherent in God's gift, which He has given to you through His Holy Spirit, is the design that you would be attached to a Bible-believing church and actively ministering in your community under the authority of that church. You say, Pastor, I'm listening online and there's no church near me. There's no church that is a local Bible-believing assembly. Well, may I encourage you? Start asking the Lord if maybe He'd lead you to start one. If maybe He'd lead you to be the groundwork, find a New Testament Bible-believing local church who can plant a church in your area and be the first member of a Bible-believing local church.
say, God couldn't use me to do that. Maybe that's exactly what God wants to use you to do. The gifting of the Holy Spirit given to you for the profit of everyone. Praying, we've seen conviction, indwelling, sealing, bearing fruit, gifting, three more. Praying. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 tells us, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit of God is not only conforming us to Christ's image, He's not only gifting us for the benefit of the local church, He's also interceding for us before God. We don't fully understand the ramifications of the Spirit's intercession on our behalf. Perhaps He takes our intentions and petitions them according to God's will. Perhaps He aids us in our own thoughts, placing men and women upon our hearts, directing our petitions, guiding our prayers for those who are in need. Little can we know the full extent of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our prayers, but we know that it is real, that it is powerful, and that it is necessary. And if I may just say it this way, in a manner of speaking, the prayer ministry of the Holy Spirit on our behalf is so amazingly reflects what the Spirit of God is to us as believers. God has certainly told us everything that we need to know in order to be spiritually successful. He's given us all things in His Word pertaining to life and godliness. But all that we know about the operation of the Spirit of God serves to highlight just how much we don't know about the operation of the Spirit of God. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The Spirit being likened unto the wind here, that is unquestion- that, excuse me, in that it unquestionably blows. But you can't see it. You, you can only see the effects of it. You can't see the wind itself. You hear the wind in the trees. You watch the wind blow someone's hair. You see its effect all around you, but you don't see the wind. My wife and I will look out the window, we'll see the lake, we'll know whether the wind is calm or whether the wind is strong, but we aren't seeing the wind, we're seeing the effects of the wind. So too, in nearly all matters of the Holy Spirit involvement, we don't fully understand the how of what the Spirit of God does or how He does it, but only with that without Him we would be without hope because we see the effects and the effects are something that are so beyond the comprehension or ability of human of humanity. Holy Spirit convicts. He indwells. He seals. He bears fruit. He gifts. He prays for us. Seventh, out of eight, the Holy Spirit teaches us. 1 John 2.27, John says, The anointing which ye have received of Him, that's the Holy Spirit, abideth in you. That's Him indwelling you. And ye need not that any man teach you But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in Him. He abides in you. And you should then abide in Him. I've talked to so many believers who mention that at the moment of their salvation, it was as if blinders fell away from their eyes and they saw the real world for the first time. They started to understand things in a different way. The Bible made sense to them. Uh, the world uh, completely turned on its head where as once they thought a certain way, now they thought in an entirely different way. They changed. 
This is the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. The indwelling Holy Spirit is active in the lives of believers, illuminating our hearts to the truths of God's Word, enabling us to understand spiritual concepts, spiritual concepts which 1 Corinthians 2.14 dogmatically states cannot be truly comprehended by those who are not indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. That literally, unless you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, the spiritual concepts of the Word of God and the truths of God cannot be understood. It says this, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit. But the Bible also says that we as believers are not only taught what is true, but we are taught by the Spirit of God what is false. That as false teachers attempt to strip God's people away from the truth of God's word, those who are submissive to Christ will be able to see through their deceits. Those who are seeing through the Spirit and not through the natural man will understand these deceits, reject these lies, and warn others to do the same. In fact, in the verse just prior to 1 John 2.27 that we just read, John specifically says in verse 26, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. Holy Spirit convicts, indwells, seals, bears fruit, gifts, prays, teaches. Eighth and finally, the Holy Spirit assures our hearts. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The assuring ministry of the Holy Spirit is in reality the sum total of all of His ministries in our life. As He convicts us, as He guides us, as He intercedes on our behalf, as He gifts us, as He... Um, teaches us all things, we recognize that the Holy Spirit is indeed within us and that bears witness that we are a child of God. We read already in the sealing aspect of this sermon about the Holy Spirit being our earnest. Consider with me a second passage where the Holy Spirit is called our earnest. Ephesians 1 which says this in verses 13 and 14, "...in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed," here it is, "...with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory." As we consider the various ministries of the Holy Spirit, we find the sum of it all is meant to be an earnest, a down payment of that which is to come. That as the Holy Spirit bears fruit in our lives, that as He teaches us spiritual concepts, that as He guides us into all truth, that as He intercedes on our behalf before the throne of God, that is a small taste of heaven. When a person makes a large purchase, one in which they don't have all the money to immediately pay it all at hand, uh, businesses will often ask for a down payment, a large lump sum of money as an advance that assures the seller that the buyer will pay the rest. The down payment is a small bit of the whole, but it is enough to satisfy the seller that the rest will come. And as we see the Holy Spirit in our lives and as He's working, He is our the down payment on our behalf. That as we, we taste but a small bit of the Holy Spirit's power working through us, it is our assurance that the rest will come. The Holy Spirit is a small taste of heaven. A small bit of paradise. The paradise that we have to look forward to in heaven. 
where we are with God, where we will know even as also we are known, where we will be free from sin, where we will be surrounded with the light of life, with the joy that is in Christ. And this small bit of heaven on earth is realized as we walk with the Spirit and as the Spirit ministers in us. It serves to excite us and comfort us about our future. But the Holy Spirit of God, He also serves to assure us that we are indeed Holy Spirit indwelled, found in Christ. And because His Holy Spirit is working in us, He will finish the task which He's begun. We've covered a great deal of academic ground this evening, but far be it from us not to take these truths and to bring them close to home. Far be it from us not to take these truths and uh, apply them to our lives in a real way. Ladies and gentlemen, you have an advocate, a comforter, a gift from Jesus Christ Himself to those who have called upon His name to be saved. Jesus said, it's good that I would go away because then you get to have this, this comforter called the Holy Ghost. He is your Christian life. Anything you do in this life that pleases God is done in faith born from the Spirit of God. Any Christ-like attitude or action that you can manifest is born from the Spirit of God. To whatever degree you understand the Bible, you have been taught by the Spirit of God. To whatever degree you have been a blessing to the church, to the local assembly, you have been a blessing because you've been gifted by the Spirit of God. If you are sure that you are on your way to heaven, you are sure because you have been assured by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is your life in Christ. But ladies and gentlemen, you can ignore Him. You can grieve Him. You can quench Him. You can take the gifts that God has given to you and you can squander them. You can bury His conviction so deep in your heart that you hardly notice Him. You can walk in the flesh so completely that you cut yourself off from His fruit. You can get cut up, caught up in men's thoughts and words and so fail to be taught by Him. In truth, the success of your Christian life can be measured by the degree to which you have an intimate relationship with the Spirit of God that dwells within you. In truth, the success of your Christian life can be gauged by the success of the Holy Spirit's ability to outwork Himself in you. That as you are filled with the Spirit of God through praise and thanksgiving and humility, as you walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, as you maintain fellowship with the Spirit of God through confession of sin, the Spirit of God will lead you into all righteousness and you will be at peace and you will be usable and you will be effective for Christ and you will be everything that God has designed His children to be. Let's close in prayer.